Welcome to the Euro Intelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. Today we would like to talk about France and the Netherlands. Emmanuel Macron has triggered Article 49.3 of the French Constitution to push through his pension reform package. Susanne, how should we think about this and what do you think is going to happen in France now? From the UK perspective, we've all seen images and videos on social media of social unrest, of burning bins and uh, scenes that looked like taking from a movie about the French Revolution. But wishful if, thinking. Yeah, it's wishful <laughs> thinking. Well, but in what actually happened is much less dramatic. And how it will develop, that will be subject to a dynamic has yet to evolve. So just to take back uh, what happened and why we are where we are. So the the article 49.3 allows the government to push through bills that are budget related to the social security budget related uh, without the vote in the assembly. So um, the government earlier on did actually attach the pension reform as part of the budget. You can dispute how sensible that is because it's not really a budget item like for one year, but it has long-term consequences. But that's something for the um, Constitutional Council later to decide upon. The idea from the Prime Minister was to get to get the vote in the Assembly assured by the Les Républicains. There are 61 MPs, and together with the majority, they would have been able to pass it. In the initial phase, uh, Eric Ciotti, the leader of the party, made some deals with uh, Elizabeth Bourne and they found a compromise for the party to, to back it. But the party couldn't unite behind his position for various reasons. Um, a lot of them are uh, ego reasons uh, because there is competition between various personalities. What then happened is that the government, they were not assured that they would get it through in the assembly. It was voted in the Senate, went back to the mixed parity commission between assembly and the Senate to find a compromise proposal on which the assembly was supposed to cast its final vote. And that's what we're talking about. That's where we are. Now that the article is triggered, it, it doesn't mean that the pension reform is through. No, still has some hurdles to take. One of them is that the constitution also allows the parliament to challenge that by a censor motion. Uh, the censor motion would need a majority of uh, 287 votes. If you look at the counts of it, uh, if it would be possible for the opposition to organize something like that, which is quite rare. I think only once it happened before uh, that uh, the central central motion against the government would if that would happen, that would be the end of the pension reform in that sort of particular text. And it would also be the end of Elizabeth Bourne. Yeah, I, I think when we discuss what is going on procedurally with Article 49.3, it's also worth taking a step back and considering how this fits more widely into the context of the French political system and what makes the French political system unique compared to other ones. As you kind of effectively mentioned, Article 49.3, it basically formally turns a vote on a piece of legislation into a confidence vote. That's essentially what it does. You trigger this mechanism, and if you lose, that is it. You go to a, you go to a legislative election. The thing about the vast majority of European countries is that they have, you know, parliamentary systems where, and it varies from country by country, some votes are taken as a matter of, as confidence votes, usually things like budget votes. If you can't pass a budget, what can you really do as a government? You have to go to an election in many cases. Governments can also more or less choose at their whim to make things confidence votes. And, and then it's really just about the government saying, well, this is an issue that's important to us and we will 
go to an election on this issue if that, that's usually not a problem because in a parliamentary system, you would have some sort of majority or confidence and supply to make up your majority, right? Because France has a semi-presidential system where the president himself is directly elected, sits at a different, basically in a different track to the National Assembly and the Senate, and chooses the executive himself or herself, it, it is fundamentally different, right? So if Article 49.3 is triggered, we have um, a motion against the government which passes and we go to a legislative election, uh, Emmanuel Macron still stays where he is, right? He, he doesn't go anywhere. And regardless of who forms um, the next uh, National Assembly, he is still going to be the one who gets to pick the cabinet, right? The composition of the National Assembly will affect his choice of cabinet, and potentially, as previous French governments might have, in that kind of scenario, he would have to enter, he might have to enter some sort of cohabitation agreement, mm. although this is very unlikely given how much the big opposition parties seem to hate him. But still, he, you know, that, that would be an option there. But at the same time, it, it's quite a different one because part of the thing with Article 49.3 is in theory, at least, you as the president, if you don't have a majority in the National Assembly, you could just keep rerunning elections until you get one or die trying, right? There is nothing procedurally, I think, to stop you from doing that, uh, except maybe if, you know, I guess there's an impeachment procedure too, but... Um, Emmanuel Macron was actually threatening that if the Assembly would vote against the pension reform, he would dissolve the Parliament. What would that do to his... What are the polls right now? I mean, he would probably not write high in the polls right now. So no. isn't this a bit of an empty threat? Probably that's why he triggered uh, Article 49.3, I thought. This is the more benign scenario if you have to dissolve the Parliament and the majority... He, he doesn't have a majority. It might have gone worse under this current climate. Because his popularity, uh, since he pushed for pension reform, his popularity has been decreasing. The way it has been happening, that's more of an issue than why it happened as such. I think that's, that's, that is a distinction that will come up eventually. You can see all the reasons on both sides. Uh, but in the end, uh, it was the government initiative and it was the government's power that actually took to what this side. Yeah, I think the other thing too, when you start to do these sorts of things procedurally, is that you risk rolling almost every other grievance into the grievance over the central issue, which at least this is the impression I get, it's kind of starting to happen now. That the pension reform, especially for a lot of people on the left, it's not just about the pension reform, it's about a set of other issues with the way in which society is being run, the fairness of said society, the responsiveness to their concerns and, th and things like this. Looking back in history, Article 49.3 was triggered by a, by, by a socialist president. president. You know, Mitterrand also basically used this in, in some instances to marginalize the French Communist Party. So it's a very, it's it's a a very uh, tricky line to run. Does he need to, I mean, one, one thought is, is, I mean, he hasn't got a majority in the parliament. Does he need to to change stack and so build a coalition rather. I mean, he's effectively running a minority government at the moment, and that seems to have kind of run its course. Are there other political options for him, or is he going to be a lame duck president? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the Le Republicains seem to be divided. That the conservative part of it, that actually, basically all their concerns about the pension reforms have been addressed. Uh, they're always were for raising the retirement age even to 65. Uh, also, to to have long working life amendments in there. All these kind of things. Women have been addressed in in the last copy there. Special provisions for women. All these kind of things have been addressed. But there is another part of the Le Republicain 
which seems to now take a more populist approach. Xavier Bertrand and Aurélien Rompagny, who refuse to leave the party, but also want the party to be set on a different footing, probably more actually to combat also Marine Le Pen on her turf. Of course, they wouldn't do anything with Marine Le Pen. The noobs seem to be happy where they are, left given what happened in the assembly. I mean, basically, they were running the show with various ways of obstruction methods, amendments, thousands of amendments, really trying to build a debate with as many obstructions as possible. And, there's a, and there are minor groups like the Lyon group from independents, liberals, and also from the Outre-mer constituencies, which do not have sort of agenda. They're only 20, so it's not really enough to guarantee a majority. So in, in that way, there is not really, unless the little bit of power were to split, we're only going to join this one part that's going to support the government that's going to go solo. Uh, we, I don't see that this is possible uh, for Macron to build another Yeah, well, the Interbank's position in all this is quite complicated, and we'll probably take an entire other podcast to explain. But uh, yeah, I, I think... What you kind of get at there, Suzanne, is, um, and this is really a problem for Macron going forward, um, even if he manages to succeed with this, is um, the only thing worse than negotiating with somebody who has a very good idea of what they want is trying to negotiate with somebody who has no idea what they want, yeah. right? And this is the problem that they are starting to get into where um, you look at Le Republican, right? And it, it just seems like there is no central control of or authority over the party right you just have a bunch of people it's they're all fighting with each other yeah and um it's like everybody can tell that this movement is kind of dying and because it is dying they're starting to fight with each other so that's going on then you have new the problem with them is that you have these disparate left-wing groups who have realized that the only real hope for the left having any influence is being together in some way but the question is what do they want to have influence over these people again they're generally aligned in a more left-wing direction but i think is old left-right divisions have started to splinter a little bit in european politics their positions on numerous issues have started to splinter too so maybe on one-off issues you could try to get them to agree with each other but in terms of anything formal that would properly provide a basis for governmental stability that is going to be much more difficult or some of them on national uh, marine le pen's faction they're out um, they're well. They're now relatively compact behind Le Pen herself. She defeated the people within her party who were against de-demonization, and uh, Eric Zemmour has kind of run away back into the shadows. Sometimes, in many different policy areas, there is not a lot of substance to what Le Pen is talking about, and it seems like in there there are a very small number of areas where she has a very firm idea of her convictions, but just lots of areas where she doesn't, and that's also quite difficult. So we are very likely to be in a sort of a lame duck scenario to these events. There's only so much that you can attach to the social security budget. Uh, you probably can't fold in education or the health reform. It's still pending. Immigration, we have... Oh, man, immigration is going to be... We did Macron not actually immigration reform more prominent. So to, to bond a little bit the attention away from the pension reform, because it became this fantastic object. From the outside, it looked completely disproportionate. It was like the trauma, it's like a social trauma that was triggered. And the, the discourse was completely disproportionate. It seemed to be, from the outside, completely disproportionate to what matter. See, yeah, not, not to mention in that scenario, you could use, you know, D Gerald Darmanin as like a stress animal for, for, for everybody else, right? If there's, everybody, if there's anything that anybody in France can agree on, it is that they, they, they like mocking or kvetching about Darmanin. So 
Damana is actually good because he can stand. He can stand through. He can, so, exactly yeah, right. He, he seems to be actually thriving. That's a quality he might actually need. No, I mean, he's incredibly pugilistic. Maybe that he could be become the new prime minister because then he would be able to just go against the uh, against and trying. Not like Bourne trying to find compromises with the opposition and actually going against it. Maybe that's this tactic they need to fight or need to adopt. Yeah, polit politically it wouldn't work out because Dominan is on one particular end of the yeah, kind of true. constellation of alliances, and you, you kind of need somebody who is either not very political or right in the middle, right? Yeah. Um, for the it's the same reason why, for instance, I'd be surprised to see like Clement Bone become this guy is on the other end of the spectrum, right? About the guy who was prime minister before, who forgot his name. Oh, Philippe. Philippe. Yeah. Well, the oh, own, he has his own agenda. The post Macron area, and so does Daman. That's one of the fallouts that might, might actually be happening. But the dynamic within the majority might also change because of that failure to get the Republicain on the on the side, and this disappointment of saying, "Well, the right didn't support us; the left is just trying to stab us." We need to find a different way forward. And I wouldn't be surprised if there is within the majority a new dynamic to find a new kind of consensus of which direction they want to be heading, and maybe not necessarily the way Macron would want would like to see it. But then again, because they have to think about the the political future post Macron, it is becoming for them much more a question of survival than it is for Macron. To be honest, I mean, I think even Macron should be thinking about the political future post-Macron. You can do all these things, but you've got to really think about whether your legislative achievements, whatever they are, are going to outlive you. To do that, you need to establish some succession work, right? Like, you know, Macron, he knows that he's going to be where he is until 2027, right? And he also knows that he will not be there beyond 2027. So with those things in mind, I'm sure that this is something that he and the people around him are thinking of, but... This is this is also something that you have to be keeping in consideration. On this note, let's move on to the central liberal government that is in trouble in Europe, uh, in the Netherlands. Mark Rutte has been sort of one of the perennial survivors of Dutch politics, quite you know, quite skillfully. Jackie wrote this week that Rutte is in some kind of a he's, he's, he's in a bit of a pickle now. Yeah, Mark Rutte is like um. Uh, the horseshoe crab of European politics. He has not evolved very much, but he has managed to stay there throughout it. <laughs> um, that is that is pretty much who he is, right? In different configurations, he is he's had allies on the left, he's had allies on the right. Now his government is mostly in the center to center right. But so one of the interesting things, whenever you read a Mark Rutte government coalition agreement, is the bit where they promise to fix the messes that were caused by the previous Mark Rutte coalition government. And one of these messes has been. Um, long-standing inaction in the Dutch government over nitrogen pollution, right? The Netherlands is one of the world's largest agricultural exporters, and that also comes with it basically a lot of nitrogen use. Now, uh, in, in particular, I, I believe it was in 2019, there was a high court ruling about this, which basically said that the Dutch government needed to get their act together. So the government did get their act together, and in 2022, they said that they were going to target a cut to nitrogen emissions by 50% by 2030. In terms of the how they were going to do this, that was going to mean basically cutting down agricultural intensity by quite a lot. And as you can imagine, that did not make the farmers very happy. Um, as you can, the dairy farmers. Especially the dairy farmers, because um, cow, cows are quite, um, as, as anybody who's looked into kind of land use and, and, and this stuff before, cow, cows are quite land use and resource intensive. So they did not like this. And also, as you can imagine, in a country with such a large agri-food sector, the farmers are also quite powerful.
So really beginning last summer, they started large scale protests. Now, anybody who's been following European politics for as long as we have will know that farmers protesting and blocking the road with tractors and stuff is something that goes on quite a lot. We've seen it like seemingly everywhere by this point. But then what also happened, as well as the farmers getting into their tractors and blocking the roads, was that they um, organized around an agrarian interest political party, the BBB. In regional elections, which took place this week, the BBB had a very good performance. These regional elections elect basically um, officials for for the Netherlands provinces. At the national level, one of the important things about this is that the provinces elect the Senate. So the Senate, the upper house of the Dutch parliament, uh, you need to pass legislation through the Senate to make it pass, um, which basically means that uh, the regional elections are materially significant for the government's ability to pass legislation through parliament, notwithstanding the fact that you might have some problems implementing your legislation if you can't deal with the provinces. So the result of this is that, at least based on the latest projections I've seen, the BBB are on track to become the largest party in the Dutch Senate. And the uh, coalition government, so four parties, uh, Mark Rutte's VVD, the kind of centre-to-centre-left D66, the centre-right CDA, and the more right-leaning Christian Union are, to collectively, they're on track to lose quite a lot of seats in the Senate. National elections are still a, a while away. They're not, they're not imminent. What would be the alternative power options? The Dutch electorate might revert to, to a, a standard voting pattern, something that we often see that in regional elections, people try out more experimental than there are in national elections. Seem to be difficult in the Netherlands to form a coalition without Rutte. Will, will that become easier? Um, I, possible, it, 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 it might become possible. And, and one of the reasons why it might become possible, again, I, I, I don't want to prefigure what's going to happen because we still could be at least a couple of years away from another election. But um, one of the things that's happening is two centre-left parties in the Dutch political system, uh, the Green Left and um, the Dutch Labour Party, occupy very similar space politically. Now, um, for quite a while, they've been moving slowly but consistently towards some sort of formal electoral pact with each other, right? I very much expect that those two parties will basically run as a joint list in the next national elections. What that means is that you will have a larger force on the centre-left, right? And that will also be changing political dynamics. This would be interesting for Europe, especially. It, it, would, be, it would be very interesting. Rutte has been a very sort of strong voice of centrist, conservatist, conservative values and for fiscal policy and other areas. Been a strong ally to the Germans on all things fiscal. So this would be an interesting shift. Yeah. So, so this is a big country. It, it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a big country and it's a country as well, uh, partly thanks to the Netherlands, you know, kind of important position in terms of trade flows and things like this, and partly due to kind of some good old fashioned Dutch candor. They have quite an outsized influence even compared to their size in a lot of European policy discussions. So it is interesting. It's also interesting for the liberals, right? Because the Netherlands has like a constellation of political parties. and we, And when we talk about the Dutch liberals, we're also kind of talking about different groups within them, right? You have your kind of more like, I don't know, classic liberals or liberal conservatives like Rota and the VVD, but then you have D66 who are like social liberals, right? So you will also maybe find a position where, okay, D66 might start losing votes towards their left and towards other kind of social liberal parties, which then changes the calculus there too. D66 are a party that have never led a Dutch government, but have frequently been here or thereabouts in coalition governments. 
So what they do will also be interesting. What the BBB, this idea of having all the farmers organizing themselves as a political party, would that be a role model? I mean, for the for others, farmers across Europe, would we see more farmers organizing themselves to all the tractor people saying, well, the protest didn't actually give us what we needed and now see what the Dutch pulled off. Maybe we can do that too. Yeah, it's interesting. So to a certain extent, these political parties already exist in some parts of Europe, right? So agrarian interests center parties have played a major role in politics in Scandinavia. And those parties, basically, you look at their lineage, they date back from farmers' interest parties. And in many instances, they still very much are farmers' interest parties. I think the difficulty, and this is going to be the difficulty with the BBB too, that farmers have maybe opinions on issues related to agriculture, but Like all people, they're individuals and they think different things. And just because they have views in this particular area does not necessarily mean that they're all going to think the same things on many, many other matters of state. What's going to happen is the green agenda has been mostly about energy. The next phase of that, the next little, you know, big phase will be about action. It will, because uh, the, it really needs to be sorted out. That, that is the moment when this becomes economic survival threatening for many for many farmers, uh, because many farming practices that exist in the EU and in other countries would no longer be viable, like feedstock that's still happening in the Netherlands in particular. Yeah. So the question then you know, becomes more urgent for, for them to form, form a party, because then they have something in common. It's the anti-green lobby. If they're defending their own livelihoods against against the green transition part two. This is this is not imminent. The EU has not reformed its agricultural policies yet. It hasn't done anything serious about that. This might happen the next time, but I don't even think it will happen the next time. It might, but it will probably happen at some point. Yeah, yeah. Well, and how quickly it happens will also, I think, depend on the European elections in 2024. Look at the many factors in this. Yeah. So. So it is a quite a plausible scenario that there can be a point at which the farmers are fighting to protect their interests. And the question of also coalitions, I mean, in the Netherlands, it's quite specific on nitrogen. So many issues on the farming, so many different directions. The farming even takes place today, where you have this green movement in or the organic movement or the no-tilt no movement. There are so many different movements in, inside the farming already. And then you have the traditional farming, even on this sector-specific one. Just different parties. There. Yeah, and that also completes a process of kind of bifurcating into urban versus rural constituencies, which bifurcates along other lines too, like young versus old and things like that as well. In in the Netherlands, where you maybe used to have parties in the center and center right that could compete both in heavily urbanized areas of the country and in rural areas. At least my impression is that increasingly we're going to be in a, si a situation where you can either compete in like the Randstad, so like the um the heavily kind of urbanized western part of the Netherlands that includes the big cities, or you can compete in the countryside. Another factor of this, and this is where the bit about these people forming alliances and stuff starts to get difficult, is that in industrialized countries, the vast majority of people live in cities or around cities. People who live in rural areas and farm or whatever, they are disproportionately affected by these issues, so naturally they're going to care more about them but they are very much in the minority. And that, I think, makes the interest difficult, especially as people elsewhere in the majority see their lives being affected more by climate change and perceive it as an issue that moves up the important scale for them. Okay, well, I think, this, I think we can wrap this up here for today. Thank you for listening. Until next week. Yeah.